Hello and welcome to Queen of the Ring. My name is Alexa. Today we're going to be talking about the incredible Aja Kong. Let's get into it. As a Black American U.S. Army man made his way to Tachikawa Airfield outside of Tokyo, Japan, he met a young Japanese woman in the late 1960s. After a meeting, they quickly got together and had a child, who was born Erika Shishido on September 25, 1970. Because of her relationship with a Black man, Erika's mother's family largely disowned their daughter and her family. After a few years together, her parents split up and her father ended up leaving when she was only five and he went back to the United States. Erica has, I think, two siblings from another marriage of his after that. It was really uncommon to be a single parent in Japan at this time because it was frowned upon to be divorced in general. As too many people know, kids can be very vicious and during school, Erica was bullied for having a single mom. Erica was the only mixed person at the entire school she was at, and the racism that she endured was incredibly cruel. If I'm not wrong, I believe it, it was very unheard of to be mixed at all in Japan at that point, um, and because they have a mostly homogenous population. From what I can tell, it's it was 98.6% of their population was 100% Japanese. She says the other kids completely ignored her most of the time, but when they would talk to her, especially the boys, would taunt her for having quote-unquote mixed blood and call her fucked-up derogatory names. And according to one Redditor who spoke about their experience at a school in Japan, he said, quote, When I was stationed in Okinawa, I volunteered at the American Asian School, which specialized in providing education to children of mixed descent who would be bullied slash ostracized under the traditional Japanese public education system. There was a decent amount of kids there when I was back in 2010, unquote. So it seems like maybe something that was still happening up until very recently, but of course I can't speak for anybody. So... While this was happening to Erica, her getting incredibly bullied at school for racist reasons, she would find some solace at first in talking to her mom, and she says her mother would tell her, you shouldn't be ashamed of yourself, you just need to be patient and you need to be brave. And as the bullying went on and on, one day she was lamenting to her mom and she said something to the likes of, why did you even have me? And she said her mom face went completely stone and crying in front of her for the first time she went to the kitchen and grabbed a knife and said since i decided to have you it's up to me to decide to kill you which is real fucking gnarly and she said it was the first time her mom ever did anything like that to her or around her and i think maybe the last time too hopefully question mark but basically it was a hard time for her and as time went on and Erica kept going through school, she started looking for a way to channel some of her energy and anger and aggression. When she was 14 in ninth grade, the crush gals were taking over wrestling and they were idol status famous amongst girls of her age. 
It was 1984. Everyone was wearing acid wash clothes. Get into it. The, the Crush Gals had this like short jaw length, mid 80s boy haircut, if you will. Like that photo of Winona Ryder in high school or like any main villain in an 80s film. <laughs> but I really cannot emphasize this enough. They were fucking pop stars. So fucking famous. And completely revolutionizing women's wrestling all at the same time. And so just two years later, in 1986, when she was 15, Erica went to All Japan Women's Pro Wrestling, AJW, for a mass audition. This was the same start to a previous queen of our ring, Megumi Kudo. They both were chosen out of 2,500 other girls for the opportunity to train there with the inimitable... (laughs) inimitable Jaguar Yakota. (laughs) It was quickly noticed that Erica was a powerhouse. She wasn't built like the other girls that were trying out. She was bigger than them. She wasn't puny. She wasn't wafy. She could have some muscle to her. And while physically training is obviously very important, the psychology of wrestling is a whole nother battle. And a way to find your way in mentally is developing a character that you resonate with. As Erica was in the process of developing her character, she told her trainers she wanted to become a babyface or the hero because she wanted the chance to be that kind of character and she wanted to be celebrated if she was honest. But she says that they told her no one would believe her as a face because she is mixed. And that equates to a quote-unquote natural villain. She said that they told her since she's black, her character must feel a hatred towards Japanese people and therefore want to crush them, using her blackness as a weapon against her. Talking about the racism that she endured, there is an article on Pro Wrestling Post about Aja that says, quote, Pro wrestling in Japan was, and largely still is, monolithic and rather conservative when it comes to presentation and storylines. Japanese wrestlers were and are portrayed as heroes defending their company and their country, whereas outsiders, especially American ones, have historically been the villains for them to overcome. This tradition stems from the early matches of Riki Dozan, the father of professional wrestling in Japan, who became a Japanese national hero during the post-war era thanks to his heroic, valiant fights against outsiders. So all of that to say that a lot of Japanese wrestlers and promoters were still perpetuating this similar dynamic between outsiders and, you know, nationals in Japan. And wrestling, as so many other venues of media, has a long history of taking fat people and using them as villains. It is based on using one's body to tell a story, wrestling, I mean. And wrestling promoters, who are historically men, have taken that to the extreme. If they allow in fat women at all, they tend to code them as heels, usually taunting a petite and very puny femme girl, giving David and Goliath in drag. I'm kidding, but truly, also, actually. The writer's characters may change slightly, but the trope remains. So this dynamic leaves the person behind the character to claim all agency. And I guess that can be good if if it goes well and we are provided with an incredible performer that we know has subverted expectations. But it doesn't mean that this person doesn't get treated like shit along the way. And Aja couldn't even say no to this character. AJW had kind of a stranglehold 
on all of women's wrestling in Japan in the late 80s and 90s and, you know. <laughs> so it was either say yes or don't wrestle at all. So when she said yes, the AJW promoters made Aja in the brand of another famous heel, Dump Matsuomoto, who I think you can tell what she looked like by her name, Dump. <laughs> and Aja debuted in her heel faction, Atrocious Alliance, who were already the arch foe of her childhood favorites, the Crush Gals. So she so quickly made this full circle so early in her career and already started with such an incredible wrestler as her, you know, ally and as a person that she looked to in Dump Matsumoto. Over the next few years, Erica was training constantly, getting up at 5 a.m. every day to go to the dojo early, clean it, train all day, clean again, and do it over again the next day. In 1987, when Erica was only 17, her mom had a brain hemorrhage. She remained pretty sick and in the hospital for a very long time, all Erica wanted was to be able to make enough money and support her mother while she was in the hospital, and she just wanted to be with her, but she had to continue to wrestle to survive and to help her mother at all, but she wasn't earning enough to support her or even herself. A quick sweet story about it is that her mom spent a lot of time in her hospital bed, obviously, and would tend to watch TV late into the night. Erica wanted to find a way to cheer her mom up even though she couldn't physically be there. Pro wrestling was usually on super late into the night and Erica realized that her mom had been watching when she had been surfing the channels. It cheered her mom up the most to see her daughter doing so incredibly on television and Erica started really performing for her only, knowing that she would be watching not too far away. Erica says at this time she decided she wanted to go all the way with this. She wanted to make a name for herself. In 1989, she and Grizzly Awamoto won the World Women's Wrestling Association Tag Team Championship. I know that was a mouthful, but it was within AJW, and it's a really famous <laughs> championship belt. And when they quickly split up, she tagged with Bison Kimura and won the same titles two more times. She was just always associated with the gold. Her opportunity and successes continued to reveal themselves as she became the WWWA champion in November of 1992, finally beating the legend that is Bull Nakano after a very long-winded feud. Aja became the first black champion AJW had had for 20 years since the icon Sandy Parker in 1972. Aja went on to hold that title for two and a half years. But that title goes even further back within the history of women's wrestling, beyond Sandy Parker. Mildred Burke, the mommy of wrestling, was the first to hold the belt in 1937. And I believe, although I could be wrong because I was not there, but when the fabulous moolah became the arbiter of women's wrestling in the U.S. with McMahon Sr. by her side, Mildred Burke was not having any of it. She was no fucking fan of moolahs, and moolah actively blocked her from being able to compete in the United States. So, Mildred took her title all the way to Japan and brought it to AJW. And after she retired her wrestling career, the belt she created remained in Japan. And it's just heartwarming, I think, to know that there are such direct lines between Aja and Sandy and Mildred and so many others. 
1993, Aja became the world champion at AJW and was already considered a notably big draw for crowds this early in her career. It's interesting to be in the place that I am where I've looked into the lives of a few different women to such differing degrees, because sometimes I'm met with very little information about their life or their career or both or whatever. But with Erica Shishido, I can see her matches on YouTube to such incredible quality. Japanese women's wrestling was at the level that these recordings were saved and cherished, and I can see her in all her painted face vicious glory anytime I want, with incredible quality again. And if you want to see the power that Erika Shishido brought into the ring around this time, watch the match between she and Manami Toyota on November 20th, 1994. They both put on a jaw-dropping performance and show, and it's still debated to be one of the best wrestling matches in history, as Manami is also considered to be one of the best wrestlers in the world. But the intensity is just so palpable. You can feel yourself in the room, almost hearing everybody's heartbeat as they ooh and ah. In 1995, Aja decided to travel to the United States and debuted in the World Wrestling Federation, the WWF. I cannot stress enough what Japanese wrestlers in general brought to wrestling in the 90s, but especially to the women's division at the time. The legendary Leilani Kai has a story about training in the U.S., being at the WWF for a few years, and traveling to Japan to try out some promotions out there. And she says that when she got there and she started training with the girls out there, she felt like she had never wrestled a day in her life because they were doing something at just such a different level than the women were doing in the United States. And it's the same in Mexico, too. Um, Mexico and Japanese wrestlers, uh, they were just completely changing the game. But people like the Jumping Bomb Angels, Bull Nakano, Monster Ripper, Bertha Fay, and more... Japanese women's wrestlers were creating space for lady wrestlers in the capacity that men were receiving it. And maybe I have a more idealist view as someone on the outside and, you know, I don't know about all the things that were happening, but as a person who can look back, you know, with the future as, um, you know, in my favor, I, I think that they were really doing something completely revolutionary. Aja was in Survivor Series that same year, completely incinerating the competition. She won, and she got the opportunity to face the champion at the time, Alundra Blaze. This seems very unimportant, but it made me perk my ears up so high for some reason. Jerry Lawler, in the middle of this takedown, says that Aja is the spokesperson for orange juice in Japan. Like all of orange juice? Like all of it? Sorry, but I really cannot emphasize enough how she tears through the competition at Survivor Series and wins. At this same time around the pay-per-view, she appeared in two episodes of Raw and ended up breaking her opponent, Chaparita Asari's nose during their match in December of 1995. And at this time, the WWE's women's division began and ended with Alundra Blaze, also known as Medusa. And when Alundra left the company for WCW, WWF's competitor, one, Erica never got her match, and two, the entire women's division was ceased and put on ice altogether. As I said, it began and ended with her. Aja 
decided to return to Japan following that. When she got back, she started working for Hustle and still AJW, but only two years in 1997, Erica started her own promotion, RCN. And although she was the champion there for about a year, she was still competing in other promotions at the same time, which is commonplace in a lot of indie wrestling promotions all over the world. Like, there's no exclusivity. But in 2001, Erica ended up literally walking out of the middle of a match, saying she was quitting at Arsian. There was a disagreement, I guess, and she ended up suing the president for false advertising. Um, But I don't know, and I guess that's alleged. She continued to work as a freelancer throughout the next few years, even going back to the U.S. for a couple of title opportunities. And I've said it before, but I think it bears repeating always. Japanese wrestling is very ahead of the curve, especially the United States. It is even said that during one of her U.S. runs, Aja Kong so inspired Leon White, he occupied many of her setup moves and mannerisms and decided to use them to create his Big Van Vader character. Like, I've seen so many people say that she's like Big Van Vader, but it's interesting because really, he's like her. And after she left her promotion and was back and forth from Japan to the U.S. over the years, she became the mentor and tag partner to the incredible Awesome Kong, a.k.a. Kaya Stevens, who is possibly most famously mainstream way is that she was on the Netflix show Glow. I would hope to be able to maybe do an episode about her in the future because she is a fascinating and incredibly talented person. When Awesome Kong debuted in Japan, she and Aja united to form the W. Kong Tag Team. They went on to defeat the Crush Gals for the AAAW Tag Team Championship only a month later, and they went on winning championships wherever the fuck they went, AJW, LLPW, Hustle, and until they eventually lost one of their titles to the Dudley Boys, which I don't think is a bad way to go out. Aja is so incredibly famous in Japan. Her career transcends wrestling, and she, throughout the years, has become a very regular TV star. The journalist Fumi Saito says that she is, quote, on game shows, morning talk shows, afternoon studio shows, early evening shows, and gossip shows, late night comedy talk shows, unquote. So you can see her at any time of the day if you turn your TV on in Japan. And Saito continues, she can be scary, funny, witty, and sometimes smart, and sometimes serious. She has a special ability to connect with an audience that transcends wrestling, unquote. Which makes me think of one of the verses in her walkout music. God made the devil just for fun. When he wanted the real thing, he made Aja Kong. In a very vulnerable interview, Erica tells the camera that plainly she is afraid of death. Death of her own, the death of Aja. And in this very intimate interview that I'm talking about that is on Assignment Asia... And I got a lot of my information about her early life there. She specifically talks about that fear. And I I know it's a little bit cliche to say, and it's very easy to say as a person from the outside, as outside as it can get, really. But Aja's never really going to die. People will be talking about Erica and what she has done for a very long time. 
And if that is one of her stronger fears, she need fear not, because she transcends space and time. And that's mostly the story of Aja Kong. I wanted to wrap this up with a little bit of a long journey of a thought that I had. (laughs) But there is this really incredible book called The 2000s Made Me Gay, in which the author, Grace Perry, discusses a bunch of different aughts, cultural touchstones, and how queer people interpret them because everything was so damn hetero at the time. And something she says really resonated with me, and I feel like it could be true for all of the people and periods and women's wrestling I've covered up until this point. Perry's discussing the SNL sketch featuring the comedy queens Maya Rudolph, Rachel Dratch, Amy Poehler, etc., and their Queer Eye for the Straight Gal skit. And she says that even re-watching kind of brings her uneasiness and feelings of discomfort at their, you know, butch drag. She still finds herself laughing and referencing a few things that they say. And then she says, quote, I find myself loving some comedy that doesn't quite love me back, unquote. And I kind of think that that's how a lot of people feel about loving wrestling as a feminine person. I always saw the parts that moved me, but was constantly reminded it wasn't for me. And when it came to visible wrestling on TV, you know, that was the WWE. And for a very long time, you couldn't really watch it as anything but a white, straight, cis guy without realizing this thing that you love does not quite love you back. And I wanted to end this here because I feel like within every person I've looked into, this has happened in one way or another. I know that that ended on a little bit of a shitty note, or a sadder note, but it's not that shitty. It'll be okay, I guess. Maybe it won't, but maybe it will. I want to say thank you so much for listening. Queen of the Ring was written by me, Alexa Pruitt. The music is by Kreider Dane at Helter Skelter Music Productions. If you like what you hear, join me again. Thank you. Thank you.